Rediscover travel with NetJets, the worldwide leader in private aviation. NetJets offers personalized solutions to meet and exceed the unique needs of discerning travelers like you. Pairing the largest private jet fleet in the world with an unmatched commitment to safety and service makes NetJets the ultimate solution. To speak with a private aviation expert, visit NetJets.com. How I began most of the work that's an independent is I started by blotting color on top of color. Started making these mono prints that I couldn't control. Hi, I'm Taylor Defoe, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Artists Peter Halley and Kelty Ferris first met sometime in the mid-2000s at the height of the abstract painting revival. Halley, a pioneering neo-conceptualist renowned for his disciplined grids, was head of painting and printmaking at the Yale School of Art then. Ferris, meanwhile, was a graduate student with a knack for wielding fluid materials like spray paint. Their work had a lot in common, a love of color, an embrace of digital influences, and a desire to release painting from both its figurative and abstract forebearers. Through the course of the teaching relationship, each found respect for the other's practice, and the conversation has continued even if the two artists don't actually talk as much as they once did. To pit their paintings against each other today is like seeing estranged cousins reunite. Time has changed them, but you can't deny the shared DNA. As Armory Week kicked off earlier this month, both Halley and Ferris presented new works at Independent New York, known in certain circles as the Thinking Persons Fair, which debuted at the Battery Maritime Building in downtown Manhattan. Ahead of the fair, the teacher and his former student reunited to catch up and exchange ideas. I tagged along, virtually, that is, to record the results. What followed was a rare glimpse at two artists talking shop in a freewheeling, discursive conversation about color, working methods, and what it means to make non-figurative painting in a time when figuration reigns supreme. Here's the conversation. Hi, Peter. Hi, Kelsey. Great to talk to you, as always. We should mention who else was in your class. Tala Madani, Mark Barrow. Matt Connors. Ross and Crow. Yeah. Anna Beppies. Keanja Strobert. Lots of interesting artists. Titus Gafarm. Oh, right. We even have a uh, MacArthur Prize winner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it was kind of an exciting time there. Believe me, it was, uh, I don't want to speak in terms of absolutes, but I, I think it was the most exciting class i worked with in 10 years. And no idea why. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it was a really dynamic time. I mean, of course, we were all psyched to be there, and uh, and it was very competitive and yet loving. It wasn't a nasty environment that it's storied to be. It was a very dynamic yet supportive. And we learned a lot from each other constantly. Yeah, that's the extraordinary thing. Even from the time of your grad students, I felt a certain affinity with your work because first, the use of contemporary materials, spray paint, etc. Also, the kind of digital, digital-aged energy everywhere. Right, yeah. Of course, all paintings look backward. They have to because they're paintings. But I think we have in common that we're trying or hoping to look forward to the future. We're both somewhat future-obsessed. I mean, I think you know, you're future-obsessed. <laughs> but looking back at your work for the last 15 years, that's obviously in the work. But how were you like that way back when as a very young artist? Oh, I don't know if I was at that moment, actually. In fact, I came into school with the problem of being art history 
dependent and obsessed. I always had an art history book open while working, really. And, you know, it's probably the influence of you and the school just to think more of the present tense and the idea that paintings had a life in the future and you wanted to address what you thought was going to become or what you hoped to become, as well as what painting had been. And of course, that takes you into science fiction because you're just in a place of imagination because one doesn't know what's going to happen. And then, of course, that brings you to an interest in technology, which the sprayed mark for me represents. And I think also like a sense of color that is artificial. That's very close to what I think you're going to say. You know, I was going to say, um, my paintings are not very athletic. (laughs) I do the studies sitting at a table and then they're put together in a very mechanical way. And the other thing that struck me about your work, the kind of energy in it can be connected to technology, but I also thought you have a really athletic relationship to the work. Correct. Yeah, that is one way in which we are very different. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. I mean, in the early 2000s, whether this was true or not, I don't know, but I felt that it was nearly impossible to make a gestural painting that didn't feel extremely indebted to the 1950s and thus had like an antiquated patriarchal throwback feel in a really negative, negative way. And I was a athletic person and a a person sort of prone to the gesture and enjoying the gesture. And I was looking for ways to do that that didn't feel antiquated. And that's one reason I started looking towards more bringing in an element of the future. It was a lot of experimentation with mark making, including knives and palettes and different kinds of paint, but the spray paint mark was the one I landed on that I've really stuck with. The gesture, as in the hand, is not really your focus, to say the least. Yeah, it's a little bit contradictory, but I consider my paintings idealist insofar as I want their content to come solely out of my head, not from the hand or body. They are tactile, The idea that there's no personality in how they're made. There's like fingertips in them, but not the hand. Uh, Now, there's just a roller. (laughs) I know. Well, I'm just saying tactility. To me, uh, I think of the fingertips, but... Oh, I see. I see. I mean, it's philosophically important, I think. Yeah, it is. And I like how that enables you to jump... I don't know if you actually jump mediums, but you jump forms, you know, from like wall work and wallpaper to painting to more sculptural feeling work and architecture and writing. Like it all seems to like knit itself together because it spawns from the head of Zeus. Like it can take forms in many kinds of materialities, which I think gives a a sense of freedom that I'm jealous of. That's one thing I've been thinking about a lot looking over your work is like how you go from like all these different kinds of manifestations, like paintings to like architecture, you know, like your last show at Green Naftali and your work in Sardinia. You're embracing the whole space and manipulating the space and the painting is intricately part of that in a pre-Renaissance way, actually. And you did the same in uh, your last show. I've always been interested in site-specific paintings, altarpieces, painting at the end of a church, painting in the chapels to the side, or how you walk through a space, a three-dimensional space, and encounter a two-dimensional image. And so most of my installations are sort of based on that, the idea of an image that you encounter in a specific spatial setting. 
It's interesting because that kind of ties you back to the body, you know, because the painting is an object in a space, but it's almost more like maybe more the viewer's body rather than your body, which is kind of you're kind of handing over the body to them. It is contradictory between how I want to make the work and how I want it to feel. Because my work, the measurements have to do with human scale, which I grew up with, with abstract expressionism. It's, I think, the first real scale painting. Is that true? You've never made like a 40-foot painting or something like something mural size? Oh, I did once, actually. But what I found is that the uh, components all have to have a kind of human dimension, like something you can fit between your hands. And then you, you can build uh, a bigger painting through that that kind of cell. Actually, the 40-foot painting was eight paintings put together in a grid. I just couldn't do one image like that. I want to talk about color a little bit. When I taught and all these talented artists at Yale, I kind of think that about nine out of 10 artists are black and white oriented. They see in terms of chiaroscuro, light and dark, modeling. And it's really kind of the exception that somebody thinks in terms of hue, primarily. I think you probably do. I mean, you seem like hue has always been a kind of primary component in your work. Was that just like forever? Yeah, I think I think it is forever. I think it's hardwired. In fact, I try to make work occasionally that's black and white, and it's it's hard for me. I mean, I do do it occasionally, or um, gray and white. And in some ways, it's also easier because you're taking out like a whole layer of, of thought process. So it makes things simpler. But for me, it's it's hard to to really find the, the heart of things without color. I think of color in terms of stories and sort of past experiences of my own. And I, and I have like lots of threads of color that I'm working on, like color relationships that I've, I sort of, ruminate on for years on and off do you do that like do you have sort of relationships or friendships between colors that you're examining over time that have specific meaning to you or definitely i'm looking at one of the paintings you're showing at the independent and it's primarily secondary colors orange green purple i mean the secondary colors are always much more central to me than the primary so if i want to think of something sort of um with that kind of sensuality like one of Picasso's paintings from the 1930s, it's always secondary colors. Yeah, that painting and those colors, especially purple and orange as a team or a friendship, it has something that I've been interested in a long time. I think of Bernard in particular, and I like the awkwardness of it. That's not a combination that's central in American fashion or flags. I'm interested in other color relationships for the opposite reason. Like I've done a lot of red and blue paintings because of like the centrality of red and blue in our culture from like sports teams to the American flag. And so I enjoy taking that centrality on and just for the opposite reasons, I think purple and orange is sort of like this outcast of consideration, even though they're beautiful and they're like, diametric oppositeness and I go to like a really French floral place in my mind with it and I think it's a little anxious making for some people you know and I and I enjoy that <laughs> I think of color in painting akin to a way a composer chooses to work in a certain key or certain kinds of chords and I think almost a lot of great paintings have a kind of key color thematic built in so, I mean, there's another painting here of yours, which is like yellows and oranges versus a little bit of minor contrast of blue and green. So it, to me, that's like the subject of the painting, almost in a musical way. 
I like to find the discords as well as the chords and, <laughs> and to sort of walk in and out of that congruency as I work. And I read that you have a bit of a yellow thing, a thing for yellow. I like yellow. I like red. <laughs> I know, but it's more complicated than that. That is like blue. <laughs> it's more complicated than that. Not really. <laughs> Well, I was making lots of yellow paintings and then people started talking about how happy they were. And that seemed way simplistic to me. And so I stopped, I you know, backed away from yellow paintings. But of course, now in this show, I have yet an, another yellow painting. I tried to bring like acidicness into yellow or, you know, people have a problem with yellow ochre as well. Like like these problems that people have with colors, like I, I see them like tense up like, around them. And I enjoy like pushing that button to make a sort of an excitement. What's wrong with yellow ochre? I don't know. I don't have a problem with it, but I think it's because it's near brown and maybe like puke, you know, like a pukiness, earthiness. It makes people uncomfortable who don't want to see or think about the earth. You know, you know, yellow ochre is one of the first colors mined out of the earth, right? Yes, I guess it would be. I did something kind of naughty for the independent. I made a painting with six blocks, the three primaries and the three secondaries. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get the get the wheel in there. Yeah, I sent it to you, right? Yes, I you know I didn't even think of it in in terms of those. Oh, that's interesting. These new paintings of yours seem to be about building to me, like the act of building with color and structure, in a child very childlike blocks way. But there's a fundamental quality, like going back to the quality of like what we build architecture out of and what we build color out of. And then in the other painting, I cheated. You had black. Yeah, I put black around everything. <laughs> I shouldn't mention that you got my joke right away, <laughs> that as a painter, you right away knew that black was cheating. Why do you think that's cheating? Like, easy. <laughs> in my opinion, black, as it's used generally as, as a separator between colors, that's the cheating in that every color is contained and separate from itself and sort of pure. And then it sort of minimizes the interactions, which minimizes a lot of the excitement and also minimizes a lot of the like discomfort people have from color, which I think is often from the interactions between two or more colors. Do you use black at all? Barely. My last show three years ago was me contending with this fact where I, I worked by making drawings and then filling in with color. Uh And that was my attempt to take on the linearity of black, you know, sort of as like a supremacy over color. That is how a lot of people think and work. And so that was kind of me experimenting with like being a different kind of artist, actually, which I've been doing a lot lately. My work at The Independent is, I would say, very color focused this time around. I have a lot of color on top of the color. I I don't know if if you thought this was insulting, but... I wrote to you that they sort of look Wagnerian. No, no. I mean, of course, everyone gets uncomfortable when Wagner comes up, but like, (laughs) (laughs) but no, the everything else else you said did not make me uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, No, no, I, I thought it was really dead on. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about sound and waves. Really? Well, that's sure what they look like. And I've been thinking a lot about waves, how waves can take different forms. Like waves can go through water, it can go through the air, it can function as sound. Like things that pass through other things, which is what waves are, and um, is sort of energy 
passing, I think, passing through other things as best as I understand it. Um, the wave is particles of water is going up and down, but the wave seems to be going laterally. I really have never asked you how you compose or make your painting. And I'll start by talking about mine. You know, everything is a landscape space. There are these two icons, either a cell or a prison, and they're connected in different ways. But unless the form is presented against the wall, it's form, figure ground, a form with a clear background. And in the early 90s, I started working on the computer, began to stretch and move those forms around and even turn them using Illustrator. So I'm starting with a landscape kind of space with like a building in a landscape, an almost figurative space. And I work out the drawing. And then after that, I start working with color. And for each composition, I'll, I'll often make five or six paintings with different color approaches. I have no idea how you do it. <laughs> I work in a variety of different ways, like compositionally speaking. But how I began most of the work that's an independent is I started by blotting color on top of color. So making these mono prints that I couldn't control. And then there was like these forms that began two colors interacting. And then I either kept doing that, like in the largest painting, there's like many colors blotted on top of each other. And then I sort of use that as a ground to either work with or against. And some sort of create, I don't know, drawn elements that float over this ground and kind of it either thumbs its nose at the ground or it works with the ground and becomes something more cohesive. Like in the red and blue painting, I go back into the ground and sort of knit it all together. And so that's something I'm sort of interested in right now is like, how do these figures and grounds, figures and grounds is just like, I mean, I mean, just like line on top of, on whatever's underneath it. What is the, their relationship? Is it antithetical or friendly? So you're really using the materials almost in a spontaneous way to, to trigger your unconscious to compose? You need to have something down to respond to? I mean, lately, my work has all been about sort of seeding my lack of control in the situation. Working, like, with this blotting me uh, mechanism of getting color down, like, I, it's, like, as anti-compositional as, as it gets because I literally can't see what I'm doing because it's two pieces against each other. And um, I don't know what it's going to be. And I'm often very frustrated by it. I've sort of been using that frustration and, la and feeling of being powerless to generate the next step. Something I've always done is like just put something down, create a problem that you either need to fix or paint over or marvel at how amazing it is by accident and then go forward. It doesn't feel unconscious, I have to admit. Like it's really slow and I feel like I'm making very conscious decisions. It's just one step at a time, like one decision at a time rather than thinking of it as a whole or what I, there's no plan. Really, the only plan is like a general sense of color relationships. Your work isn't exactly gestural, but what other gestural painters do you admire? I mean, so many. I've been looking at Joan Mitchell lately. They drive me crazy. They're so tortured. Yes, they are so tortured. That's a really good way to put yeah. it. Yes, I, I wouldn't have thought you felt that that was like your work. You know, I think a lot about Joe Bradley, and I think he's very indebted to Joan Mitchell, and no one ever talks about it. And I was thinking about Joe Bradley in relationship to your building paintings, you know, and his robots. So that's 
I don't know, someone who I think we sort of have in common at the moment. Um, anyway, Katarina Gross is a big one. I wish I knew how she did them. How she makes that work. She just does it. She just... <laughs> the big spray gun? Yeah, she just does a big spray gun. Yeah, I'm always, like, intrigued by, like, that scale and sense of diversity in work. And I feel like I'm always, like, stuck at a certain scale or something. And when I- you mentioned Katarina Gross, that made a lot of sense to me because, I mean, the way I see it, gesture for you is lyrical, rhythmic, and her her... Work also has that kind of lyricism or harmony, as opposed to somebody who's really tortured. Right. Yeah. What about you? I just got through reading um, Ninth Street Women and a book on Helen Frankenthaler, and I'm sort of enmeshed in second-generation abstract expressionism right now. I was telling you about that artist George McNeil, who I've rediscovered. <laughs> Hope everybody's listening to that from the 1980s and. It's really interesting to look at gestural paintings in the 40s and 50s, and they really were committed to the fact that putting the paint down with the brush on the canvas was kind of like a record of their existential state. It's quite fascinating. You know, it's, it's like these classics that never go away as much as you want to get away from them. At least that's how I feel. Classics being that period of art. Like, you want to escape this golden era of, of American painting, and yet you don't? Or is that not how uh, you feel about it? You go back there as, like, your happy place. No, no, I, I'm just very curious about everything. Once I started reading one book, I decided to keep going. Right. I have a question about that. Earlier on in your respective careers, you were both recognized as artists pushing the boundaries of painting, trying, to borrow your phrase, Kelty, to look forward in time to the future. Is that still a priority for you? Or to put it another way, when you're each in the studio today, are you looking back or finding a new way forward? 1981, when I began to work with prisons and cells connected by conduits, I was convinced that that's a paradigmatic base of contemporary life. And at the time, I was thinking about cable TV and electric systems and so forth. But it pretty much ended up being a roadmap for digital connectivity. We're all here in front of our monitors and we're connected by conduits in our little cells. So, I mean, I really was consciously trying to map what the space of contemporary life was turning into. And the idea behind that is kind of uh, physical isolation and uh, technological connectivity. I was going to say, and you did it. Like, talk about, like, seeing the future. People gave me a hard time at the time. They thought I was exaggerating, and it turned out I underestimated. (laughs) (laughs) As relevant as many of those ideas still are, Peter, it sounds like you're not thinking about them as much right now. Is that right? I'm still living in that basic diagrammatic space. The work veers towards that or away from that in different ways, but um, that's still the, the spatial world that inhabits the paintings. It's not really a multi-nodal world. I mean, I kind of think of my work as digital 1.0 and an artist 20 years younger than me would be digital 2.0. So, I mean, you can't help but, for the most part, describe the world that you're coming into as a 30-year-old painter. I guess you would say it's no longer futuristic. What about you, Kelty? Reviewers of your work often compare it to that of great 20th century abstract painters, but often as a point of departure to suggest that you're charting a related but new path forward for the medium. Do you feel like that's what you're doing? 
Newness is definitely important to me, yes. I think a lot about a timeless quality of painting. I sort of slightly disagree with Peter, and I actually kind of think he's underselling himself a little bit. That's the way I can put it, is that both of us are interested in constructing paintings out of smaller bits or smaller marks. Peter has this square that he calls the cell that he connects and makes larger forms, and he breaks this cell apart, he expands it, he connects it, and he builds with it. And that is what now has been called the bit. I've always been interested in French painting to Seurat and the pointillists, where they built images out of dots. To me, that's like the early scientific approach to painting is a precursor to how we make images now. Uh, That's kind of great. The one thing we didn't talk about was uh, light in Kelty's work or my work. People have also always told me that it's a contradiction because, well, in some ways, my work is, I guess, almost obviously postmodernist and comes from that era when an artist says, well, my work is about creating light, creating luminosity. Well, that goes back to this modernist paradigm. And it's something that's still very important to me. I hope it's a technological light. It was a very conscious goal for me to create a light divorced from nature. Yeah, and I think I think of artificial light as well, an artificial color. And when things become connected through a grid or things are discrete and yet connected, there is a modern or postmodern relationship there that is that feels very dynamic and is still being constructed. If French painting can feel as important to this and dynamic, the 80s are not like that long ago. And we're also talking about something that will, I think will be relevant in 30 or 40 or 50 years, despite how much the world is going to change. My point is, is like things are changing very quickly. And yet certain things have been around for hundreds of years and are still being formulated, like abstraction, bit making. There's another question I have for you, too. For painters working in abstraction, which is how I would describe you both, Oh, on the contrary. I mean, I don't think my work is abstract at all. Do you, Kelty? Do you think your work is abstract? Yes, I do think mine is abstract, but it's true. I don't think of your work as abstract. Okay. Well, it is diagrammatic. So um, Taylor certainly deals with simplified images. So Interesting. Nevertheless, I think the question I have is relevant. In a hyper-politicized period, such as the one we're in now, I wonder if you find yourself wavering in commitment to abstractionism, say, or to formalism, to non-figurative styles of painting that aren't overtly about the moment. Is that something you've had to reconcile? Uh, I don't think I has anything to do with me. I love that. Peter doesn't have this problem. It's like, that's wonderful. I've been painting prisons during the Trump years. I mean, I do consider my work political. It's just sort of metapolitical. You know, no matter what is going on in work stylistically or in terms of its ostensible subject matter, I do think adventurous painting is about inventing languages that can be innovative. I also think that the art I admire the most is about thought experiments. And so if some guy wants to paint prisons for his whole life, to me, that's a, that's a kind of thought experiment akin to um, Agnes Martin deciding to paint horizontal pencil lines. That's something I I do feel hardcore about, art as thought experiment. I guess I would just say that, you know, a picture of a body is not necessarily the best representation of a body. A picture of a body is not the best way to represent an identity or humanness. It's a very valid way of depicting it, but there are many other ways to do it. 
and and painting has a long history of revealing humanness and and identity by showing us who the maker is or who they might be or 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 how their mind works and their interiority so that's that's you know i guess that's what i would say i do struggle with this though but i don't think it's the solution would be for me to paint bodies like maybe the solution would be go work in politics or something <laughs> one thing i'm struck as by with peter as a person and with some aspects of his work is like a sense of possibility and positivity in contrast to like a very neg- negative subject matter which is cells and jails. However, the cells and jails are connected. <laughs> and so that connection does offer me some hope and the color to me is is energizing. And I was just wondering Peter if you have a feeling of like the yin yang of positive and negative forces in your work. Is there one that you emphasize more at different times or do you even think about it in this duality is this simplistic of what I'm doing like I'm talking sort of about emotional tenor that you want us to walk away with or you want to express yeah I mean Kelsey that, that, that's very very sensitive reading um you know in fact I do feel that in a kind of bare bones very coded almost Samuel Beckett kind of way, the paintings have a kind of existential subject that they're about connection and isolation and certainly uh, feelings of euphoria, feelings of um, being weighed down. It's very, very deracinated. It's all reduced to these geometric forms, but I think you can read them as being about those basic problems of being human. Yeah, it's sort of interiority and exteriority, oh, like yeah. how we all have like a space in, like within us that is like trapped and also, you know, beautiful. <laughs> and then there's like, and we want to connect. And yet that connection can also be faulted. I don't, I don't know. You're basically trying to keep all of these alive, I guess. All these emotional tenors. Like, are you at some points trying to emphasize the, the imprisoned feeling and some points you're trying to emphasize the elation or or do you just try to keep them all over the arc of your all your work you're trying to keep all the balls in the air you can't really intend to the various paintings i make tend to uh still i think tend to float into all kinds of areas i mean frankly even these two paintings for the independent i think are very very different in terms of uh, emotional tenor yeah that was such a nice question from my point of view, I've always had a great time talking and we could continue for another hour easily. <laughs> It'd be for the second album. Well, it's been so interesting to hear the two of you speak about your work with each other. Thank you, Peter and Kelty, for joining us on The Art Angle. Thanks, Kelty. Thanks, Taylor. And thank you so much for having me, you both. Peter, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. We'll help other listeners to discover what we're doing. And if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at artnet.com. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.